heart to share with you um, a few months ago, or maybe about a month ago, six weeks ago, and uh, it has to do with, uh, he, he brought some clarification to this idea of restoration and what that means for us, and uh, I really wrestled with it this week, and uh, because I, I didn't feel like I finished last week's message, and uh, I felt like I really needed to go into it, but the Lord uh, confirmed a lot of those things uh, over, in my heart over the last couple of days. And uh, I do believe this is a word that he has for us as a church, and there is a lot contained in it. And in a little bit, we're going to hand out a handout to you that's going to help you follow along and maybe remember some of the things that I share with you. But uh, this idea of striving for full restoration is something that we've really um, been praying into since last September. It's something as a church that we we brought you into uh, probably back in January or February of this year and asked you to pray along. Uh, with us as leaders. And from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, strive for full restoration. Um, what that means in essence, people ask me all the time, and it's really hard because um, I feel like there's a lot of things it means. But in essence, what it means is it, it's restoring God's original design. When Jesus came to the earth, he was in the temple or in the synagogue on Luke in, uh, on a Sabbath, and he read from Luke chapter 4, well, not from Luke chapter 4, he actually read from Isaiah, but he read what's found in Luke chapter 4, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Can I tell you something? There's still good news to proclaim. You wouldn't know it by watching all of the Christians' Facebook pages out there or by listening to all the Christians talk. You would not know that there's good news to proclaim, but I'm here to tell you today there's good news to proclaim. Now, let me tell you right up front, uh, this isn't a word to be condemned about or to feel shame or guilt about. So if I, in my delivery, make you feel that way, that's not God, that's me. And so you just know that God's here today to wake us up. And it's an encouraging thing, but uh, how many of you know we've fallen asleep Amen. And he's trying to wake us up as a church in America. And if we don't wake up nicely, <laughs> he will wake us up because he loves us. Okay. He, he, just like you, when you go in, you don't go into your kid's room and throw water on them first thing. And if you do, we got to have a talk. You, you gentle. But if they don't respond to the gentle, you get a little louder. It's the same way with God. He is trying to wake us up as a church. And if we don't respond, or in the nation, not just this church, but if we don't respond, he's more than willing to bring this economy to a halt, if that's what it takes. He's more than willing to take away our freedoms, if that's what it takes. Because if you read the scripture, you realize God did some of his best work when his people were in bondage. So he doesn't need you to be free. He doesn't need, on this Veterans Day, Praise God that all of these men and women fought for our freedom, but God doesn't need us to be free to get the job done. He doesn't need a Republican Congress to get the job done, okay? So it's time to get our eyes where they need to be. Jesus came to restore God's original design, and he made it possible because when he died, the last words he said was, it is accomplished, and then after he rose to life and he ascended to heaven, he said, as the Father sent me, now I send you. How did the Father send him? To proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what God's calling us to do. And some of you may be saying, well, pastor, we've been doing that since I got saved. No, we haven't. We've been fooling ourselves, thinking we have. We've been showing up and punching a time clock at church, but we have not lived as the church. God is calling us to be restored to our relationship with the Father. We've talked about that. And about matters pertaining to the Spirit. I don't care if you can articulate the doctrine of the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues if you don't live in the power of the Spirit every single day. It doesn't matter. Otherwise, it's just theology. We need some practicology. It's time for us to start casting out devils. It's time for us to start healing the sick. It's time for us to start raising the dead. This is what Jesus came to accomplish. And for the longest time, Assemblies of God churches have fought for doctrinal purity, but we haven't lived it. 
And it's time for the church to wake up. And God, over this last year, I feel, has ordered our steps. Actually, he's ordered our steps for 20 years that I've been here. And I, I see the way that God has moved. Some of you over the last few months feel like because we're, we're making a shift that that somehow nullifies the past. Well, let me tell you something. I've been here 20 years. And do you don't think it's hard at 20 years to take the kind of dramatic shift I'm taking? You don't think I have to fight the idea that for 20 years I've, I've failed, for 20 years I've done it wrong. That's not true. That's a lie. For 20 years, I've followed God the best I thought I knew how. And by, by his faithfulness, by his grace, layer upon layer upon layer upon layer, he has been ordering our steps. And he's brought us to this point, this idea of restoration. And some people have asked, well, why do we need to change our name? I want you to do a study for me. I want you to go through this book and see how many times people encountered God and he changed their name as a result of it. Because a new vision requires new change. And it's time for us to break out. And I know that some of these things are divisive and some of these things we don't agree on. But I trust if we continue to press in, God will make it plain to us. Us. All of us. We have said over the last months that we need to pray like everything depends upon God and work like everything depends upon us. Churches tend to do one good and one not so good. They either pray like it depends on God or they work like it depends on them. But rarely do we do both. And when we learn to do both well, that's called revival. Today is a special day because today is Orphan Sunday. And for the longest time, I've wanted to talk about something that has been uh, really on my heart for a number of years, even before we started about four years ago with Royal Family Kids Camp. Um, I have loved this idea of Royal Family Kids and I just waited for the leader. I waited for God to move on someone's heart. And uh, when Christy felt like the Lord was prompting her to do it, um, and she'll be the first one to tell you, she's not the right candidate for this job. I mean, this is not her personality type. This is not her strength. But when the Lord moved on her heart, she said, I feel like I need to do it. And I would say, we're doing it. Some of you, the, the dev, I, I need to stick to my notes. Psalm 68, verses four and five. Sing to God, sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. A father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. This is who our God is. Orphans are not people who do not have parents. That's not even the dictionary definition of an orphan. An orphan is any child who has been deprived of parental care. A child who's been deprived of parental care. He is a father to the fatherless. Now, everyone has a father, or they wouldn't be here on earth. But some of their fathers are absent, even though they're present in the home. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16, God says, learn to do good. Learn to do good. Not just, you know, learn about what is good. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Lest you think that's an Old Testament verse, James chapter 1 verse 27 reminds us, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Through our involvement in Royal Family Kids Camp, God has really opened my heart to not just uh, the cause of, of abused and neglected children, but to so many different things. And there's a video today that I wanna to share with you, and it's kind of a lengthy video, but I think it's an important video because I'm gonna share it to you for you for a couple reasons. One, when we take our leaders, our, our workers, through training for Royal Family Kids Camp, uh, there's an extensive amount of training that we try to give to them because you have to understand the world of abuse and neglect. 
if you're going to help children that come out of that because they don't act like other children and you can't respond to them like you maybe would any other child. You have to understand where they came from. You have to understand why they're responding the way they're responding. And so this video is going to kind of give you just a little bit of an idea of the world that foster kids come from, okay? That's an important reason. The, the second thing is, is I think this is, this is a launching pad video to help us understand that caring for orphans and caring for widows is a part of what God has called us to do, but it's going to actually launch me into some other things that I want to share with you that I think God is sharing with our body. Um, orphans and widows are one issue. They're not the only issue that God is calling us to fight for, and I believe he's leading us to start fighting. If you remember years ago, God put a scripture on our hearts, be sober and be vigilant, okay? He hasn't forgotten that. He hasn't turned us away from that. He's still calling us to be sober and to be vigilant. And I think that some of us, church folk, have a wrong impression of how to get where we want to go. We have these goals of things we want to see happen. We want to see revival. We want to see people saved. We want to see the lost come into the kingdom. We want to see people healed. And I don't think we fully understand the cost factor of that. It's easy to sit in this room on Sunday morning and say, I want to reach the lost. I want to serve the poor. And I think this video kind of maybe gives us a little bit of a window to the cost of that. And, uh, and again, when I come back, I'm going to share a little bit more. So this is a, a man by the name of Josh Shipp, and I want you to listen to his story. As a kid, I mastered the art of getting kicked out of foster homes. I was scared, I was confused, I was hurt by the things happening to me and around me as a kid, so I acted out. What kids do not talk out, they will act out. And for me, I felt like I had no one to talk to about these crazy, scary things going on in my life, so I acted out. And most regrettably, I took it out on the very people who were trying to help me. Here's how cynical I grew about my situation. I would literally keep a notebook with statistics of how quickly I could get kicked out of each foster home. Three columns. Column one, the date I entered the home. Column two, the date I got kicked out. Column three, the methodology I used to get kicked out. I was so callous, so removed so bitter about my situation that it was like a game to me. What you don't talk out, you'll act out. And the fact of the matter is I trusted no one. And looking back, I guess, how could I? From the time my parents left me, to the time another foster kid raped me, to the time I was bullied so bad, I tried to kill myself with a bottle of pills. I genuinely could not fathom a world where I could trust anybody, especially adults. So fast forward, here I am, 14 years old, entering eighth grade and entering my umpteenth foster home. I was a pro, a veteran at this whole sort of getting kicked out of one home, moved to the next. I knew exactly how it went down. Social worker, comes, picks you up, white government-issued van, you drive somewhere across town and you meet these people who were like literally complete and total strangers 10 minutes ago who are now apparently your mom and dad. You know, kids don't take candy from strangers, just move in with them. <laughs> so I'm sitting in the van in the driveway of this next home preparing to meet Rodney and Christine from Yukon, Oklahoma. Social worker's giving me her typical lecture. I've heard it a dozen times. I'm not paying attention. I sort of gaze up on the front porch, and that's when I see Rodney. He's standing up there on the front porch, and immediately I notice this is a large fella, <laughs> even by Oklahoma standards. He's six foot five, he's 350 pounds, and as a 14-year-old boy, I couldn't help but notice when he's turned to the side like that, he's shaped like a lowercase b. It's amusing now, but in the moment it was tactical. Nothing personal against Rodney, but maybe that's how I could get kicked out of this home. Maybe I could get under his skin about his weight. Again, it wasn't personal, 
I needed to make another log in my notebook. I returned to the social worker. She's continuing to lecture me about, don't you screw up this one? And I'm like, okay, whatever. I asked this next question, and I try to ask it casually to not raise any alarm with her. I say, do these foster parents have any sort of illnesses I need to be aware of? She's like, no, not really. Well, come to think of it, Rodney does have narcolepsy. And I'm like, what's that? She's like, he'll you know, be doing something, and he might fall asleep. I'm like, all right, that's weird. I say, what does he do for a living? She says, kid you not, he's a driver's ed teacher. <laughs> I'm thinking, come on, people, I want a challenge. My previous high score is seven days. I'm going to get kicked out of here in three. So I move in with him, I release the crack, and I unleash my typical antics. I'm being obnoxious, I'm being ungrateful, I'm being just downright rude and mean, I'm setting things on fire, I'm stealing the family vehicle, I'm getting suspended from school, and three years later, I can't shake this guy. <laughs> Rodney won't kick me out. So I step up my game. I go to the local bank in town, Small town Oklahoma, I open up a checking account. I put about 90 bucks in there. Then I proceed to write $10,000 worth of checks. Obviously, checks bouncing one after the next after the next. One check that bounced was for my car insurance. In Oklahoma, if you don't have car insurance, they'll ping the system, and then they will cancel your driver's license. I'm going down the road speeding, Stillwater, Oklahoma, 88 miles an hour. No car insurance, no driver's license. I'm six months away from graduation. I get pulled over, handcuffed, thrown in the back of a cop car, and sent to jail. You get that one phone call. I call Rodney. Hello? Hey, Rodney, uh, it's me. Listen, I don't know exactly how to tell you this, but... Rodney! Rodney! <laughs> yep, this is all true, by the way. Like, Rodney, I'm in Stillwater, I'm in jail, I'll tell you the whole thing when you get here. Can you please come bail me out tonight? He said, I will come bail you out, but not till tomorrow. Rodney frustratingly believed sometimes one of the most loving things you could do for a kid was allow them to sit in either the success of their wonderful choice or the stupidity of their foolish choice. Next morning, he comes, bells me out, exactly as promised. We have a long, very awkward car ride home. No one says anything. We get back to the house. He's like, we need to sit down and talk. And I knew this moment had finally come. To be honest, I don't blame Rodney for kicking me out. I would have kicked myself out. Rodney was a wonderful human being, and I did nothing but be ungrateful, unappreciative, hard-headed, stubborn, terrible, to genuinely a wonderful human being. So Rodney, his wife, sit me down to give me the talk I've had a dozen times. He looks in my eyes and says, son, you can keep causing problems. You can keep trying to mess up. You can keep pushing us away. You can keep trying to get us to kick you out of here, but you've got to get it through your thick head, son. We don't see you as a problem. We see you as an opportunity. And in that moment, all my skepticism came to the surface. And I thought, what a cheesy, stupid thing to say to a 17-year-old kid. But then I was overwhelmed with the reality that this guy actually meant it. He didn't see what I was, what was on the surface. The obnoxious kid, the ungrateful kid, the kid getting suspended, the kid not appreciating how wonderful of a human being he was and the favor he was doing for me. He saw something far more subtle, far more nuanced. He saw what I could be. It was genuinely my turning point. Now, the fact of the matter is, you don't have to be a foster kid like me to face challenges, difficulties, circumstances these days as a kid. 3.2 million of our kids are bullied each and every year. Our young kids, as early as age 11, 
are exposed to pornography. 1.2 million of our kids drop out of school each and every year. Our kids are numbing out with drugs, and our kids are tragically killing themselves. And these statistics do not just represent kids that you might understandably assume they represent. Kids like me, foster kids, at-risk kids, kids in unideal situations. The fact of the matter is, these statistics represent all of our kids from every imaginable background, every imaginable economic status, every imaginable situation, single parent household, two parent household, most ideal of situation, most unideal of situation. The fact of the matter is, these days, every kid is one decision, one friend, one situation, one moment, one choice of their own, one choice of someone else's, one decision away from being a statistic. Now, statistically, I am supposed to be dead, in jail, or homeless. And not to brag, but I am an overachiever, so I would have done all three. <laughs> Just saying. Yet, interestingly, don't miss this. I'm not a statistic. And it's not because I'm particularly bright or resilient. And it's not because of a government program or the perfect school district or the latest best-selling parenting book, but because of one caring adult. One flawed yet caring adult. One imperfect, just like you and I, yet caring adult. You see, every kid is one caring adult away from being a success story. Yes, even the kids that drive you crazy. Yes, even the kids that don't get and listen to what you have to say. Yes, even the kid that doesn't realize how absolutely brilliant what you're saying is. Every kid, including that one, is one caring adult away from being a success story. Now, I don't say that because I think it would sound nice to say up here, or nice on like a cat poster. I love those. I say that because I am that kid. March 2015, Harvard's National Scientific Council on the Developing Child released this study saying, and I quote, every child who winds up doing well has had at least one stable and committed relationship with a supportive adult. My friend and mentor, Reggie Joyner from Atlanta, taught me to think about it this way. In this jar, are 936 marbles. Each one of these marbles represents a single week from the birth of a kid until that kid turns 18 years old. So if you know a nine-year-old, you've only got 468 marbles, or weeks, however you want to look at it, remaining. And yes, if you're tracking with me, by this point, you have indeed lost half your marbles. You're welcome. You know a 16-year-old? You got 104 marbles remaining. Right here, we are looking at time. In fact, you're looking at all the time or all of the weeks you have left to influence this kid, this kid, or this kid before they turn 18 and begin making critical life decisions without your presence. Now, I don't bring this up to be depressing. I bring it up, rather, to impress upon you. What matters isn't how much time you have left with a particular kid that you care about. What matters is what you do with that time left. So, what exactly am I proposing? Thank you for asking. According to that fancy-pants Harvard study, if you want to positively impact the course of a kid's life, you should identify one kid and consistently and intentionally invest time in that one kid. Maybe they're eight years old and on your baseball team. Maybe he's 13 and is your own kid. Maybe he's 15, lives in your neighborhood. Maybe she's 17 and is your niece. For most of us right now, and I'm a father myself, and I'm thinking of a, like an older kid, for most of us, a kid kind of comes to mind. 
Identify one kid, consistently and intentionally invest time with that kid. Simply put, find out what they're into, and uh, assuming it's not illegal, spend time doing what matters to them because they matter to you. This means one meal at a time, one bowling alley at a time, one thoughtful text at a time, one conversation at a time, one fishing trip at a time, one stupid teen movie about vampires you can't stand, no offense, at a time. One thing that matters to them at a time. And I'll be honest, sometimes when you're like investing time, you're like, well, it's not working, Josh. Like, I'm, I'm doing that. Like, they're not listening. They don't understand how brilliant I actually am. And you probably are. Consider this. Kids spell trust, T-I-M-E. And when you consistently invest time in a kid, even though you're right most of the time, we don't deserve it. Josh, you're not a problem. You're an opportunity. Think of how many weeks I was absolutely obnoxious to Rodney. Ridiculous. Week after week after week after week. That wonderful man put up with my obnoxiousness. Built trust, built trust. You're not a problem, you're an opportunity. I mean, consider how many weeks Rodney had left when he bailed me out of jail. Twenty-six. I was six months away from graduating high school. Twenty-six weeks to get through my thick head, my bitterness, my anger, my distrust of adults, to get me to finally accept help, finally to go to church, finally to go to counseling, finally to get a mentor. You see, it's not about how much time you have left with that kid you're thinking of, what matters is what we do with that time that we have. Because at the end of the day, this talk is not about my sappy foster kid story. And it's not about my dad, Rodney, though he's awesome. I have a photo of him for you here, my man. And it's not even really about our kids. It's about you. If what the Harvard study suggests is true, that every kid truly is one teacher, preacher, plumber, homemaker, engineer, empty nester, entrepreneur, if every kid truly is one caring adult, one Rodney away from being a success story, then the challenge is this. The difference between a statistic And a success story is you. So the difference between a statistic and a success story is you. I'm grateful for the families in our body who have become foster parents over the last several years and grateful for all of those that work in Royal Family Kids and work towards even the expansion that we'd like to do and offer mentoring clubs in addition to the camps that we offer and uh, grateful for that. But we're not just talking about uh, foster kids. We're talking about all kids. The statistics do go across the board. And the one of the statistics that he didn't mention to you is that roughly 80%, 80%, that's the best statistic I could find, some higher, some are lower, of People who choose to follow Christ will do so before they turn 18 years old. 18, 80%. 90 to 95% will make that decision by the time they turn 29. See, it's not that it, it doesn't matter once we get to a certain age. It's just that we work harder to hit the statistics. That doesn't mean we forget about the 6% that are 30 and up. But here's what I find. A lot of people who are 30 and up are on their way. And a lot of the people that aren't on their way are the ones that we go after. 
The church, by and large, spends most of its time caring for people who already are in relationship with Christ and not nearly enough time seeking and saving those who are lost. It's not about balance. It's about going after the one. Kids today face unbelievable amounts of pressures and addictions and hopelessness and suicide, and I hope you didn't miss that, is the second leading cause of death among teenagers. And it's just not okay. It's really not okay anymore. A 13-year-old from Iroquois just recently got to the place where he felt that was his best option. Not from a broken home, not from a home where no one cared about him. He's not a statistic. He's someone that maybe some of you in this room know. That's plaguing our culture right now. On the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, in two years, there were 250 suicide attempts. And yet, we're concerned about what President Trump said or didn't say this week. Where are those 250 suicide attempts on the news? And why doesn't anyone care? Oh, I know we care. Does anyone know we care? Instead, we argue that the Washington Redskins logo is no big deal. Maybe it is a big deal. And maybe it's time for the church in America to wake up and recognize we're doing something wrong. The role of parents in the lives of children are more influential than people outside the home. That's a statistic. So not only do we need to go after children, but we need to go after families. Because if there's a strong family, that more than likely helps that child with a greater chance of success. But putting 20 kids in a room with two adults isn't going to work. But after all, we're just looking to maybe babysit them so you and I can hear something. And yet you and I have heard so much and apply so little. Maybe it's time for a change. See, we agree that foster kids and kids need our affection, need our attention. We recognize that need. But what if that kid is 25 years old or 35 years old or 55 years old? Are you and I willing to take the, the Rodney amount of effort and invest it into a 25-year-old that hasn't grown up or a 35-year-old that hasn't grown up? And how much time and sacrifice and cost are you and I willing to put up with in order to make sure that one gets into the kingdom? See, these are the things that I've started wrestling with <laughs> because Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Let your gentleness be evident to all. It doesn't say do it gently some of the time, six or seven times. Maybe 70 times, 70 times. And see, it's easy to get cynical because our world is cynical. It's easy to get frustrated and angry and to get weary in doing what is good. But I'm here to tell you God is trying to wake us up and say there is still hope for the hopeless. If the church will rise up and be the church, we can bring hope to the hopeless. We can bring hope to the reservations here in South Dakota. We can bring hope to foster kids right here in South Dakota. We can bring hope to every family in this community. I don't care how many of us are in this room. It doesn't take a lot. It takes one committed person to say, God, I'm all yours. I'm all yours. Not just on Sunday I surrender all, but I'm all yours. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Do not become weary in doing what is good, because at the right time you'll reap a harvest if you don't, do not give up. I want to share with you today 10 things. And I, 
It's not fully developed, but I'm going to put it in your hand in just a moment anyway. But again, I want to remind you that we need to pray like it all depends on God and work like it all depends upon us. There are people that say, Pastor, you can't just pray, you have to do something. And that statement is true. But I would also say that you can't do something until you've prayed. Because without prayer, what we do ends up becoming temporary and not eternal. And if the church would learn to pray and do, we wouldn't have to be those who cast out devils in the name of the Jesus who someone else preaches. Or if we're unable to deal with that situation because of a lack of prayer or connection to the Father or an understanding of who we are in Christ, then we'll just medicate it. And that's what we've become. A highly sophisticated culture of unbelief with no connection to the Father, no hand in heaven. And so let's just try to help people cope. Jesus didn't come to help you cope. He came to set you free. Help you cope is not in Luke chapter 4. He came to set people free. And if we pray without corresponding action, our work is just as fruitless as those who work without prayer. When we work without prayer, it leads to frustration, it leads to a lack of results, and it usually leads it anger toward religious folk. And that's what you have. You have churches that preach a social gospel but do not preach an intimate connection with a father, and so they get angry at church folk. If we pray and yet don't work or serve people, it leaves us just as frustrated and angry, but usually at the people in our world who are immoral. But I believe revival happens when the church gets one hand up in heaven and one hand down in the gutter of humanity and begins to act like a conduit of love and power and brings those two together. And it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't even happen in a week sometimes. Sometimes it takes months. Sometimes it takes 20 years of sowing seeds to start to see any fruit of that labor. Are you and I willing to invest 20 years of labor into a field that you don't even see fruit from, that you may never see fruit from? Because you're not going to get weary in doing what is good. And so I'm going to ask the prayer team, they're going to hand out a sheet to you that has 10 points on it. And these 10 points are things that I want you to pray into, not just today, but every day. Next week, we are actually going to take time in the morning worship service to pray into these together. And I'm putting them in your hand because I'm going to go through them really quickly. And I want you to have them in front of you so that you can see what I'm articulating and so that you can begin to pray into it. I want you to look up from your paper for just a moment, and I want you to listen to me. The scripture says that God has fitted this body together perfectly as he sees fit. I believe some of you are going to be the answer to one of these things that I believe God has laid on my heart for this church to be active in. I don't believe that all of us are going to be in active ministry in all of these areas. That's impossible. We're not going to be there. Okay, but all of us are going to make this a matter of prayer. All of us are going to pray into these things because an arm of our body is going to be involved in ministry and they need us to stand with them doing battle for them so that when they start serving, there's an open door in the heavenly places for lasting fruit to take place. We're not going to be a church that just serves. We're not going to be a church that just prays. We're going to be a church that does both and brings a revival to this city and to this nation. Oh, but Pastor Tom, we're just a small church in here on South Dakota. Maybe you need to spend time in this book because God doesn't need many. He just needs a few. The first thing that God has called us to do is to restore people to a relationship with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, we have talked about this over and over over the last several weeks, but Romans chapter 8 says, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. You received the spirit that has brought you adoption to sonship, and by him you cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We have got to restore people to the understanding that they are sons and daughters of God because of what Christ has done for them. Those of you in this room that still struggle with it, 
it, you need to start making this a matter of your attention every single day. You need to pray into this. You need to come to understand that you are a son or a daughter of God. You have been marked with the Spirit to go out and to make a different, to make a deposit into the lives of other people. You don't have to wait till you get all of your ducks in a row. You will never get all of your ducks in a row. You will never deal with all of the quirks that you have. You will never do it on this side of heaven. In your weakness, he is strong. Stop believing the lies and start depositing the kingdom everywhere you go. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, no longer counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal to us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are not preaching a message of morality. We are preaching a message of salvation. There is no hope of morality until you come into the kingdom. I'm not against him. I'm not against morality at all. In fact, I believe that anyone who comes to know Jesus will live as he did, and we will learn to surrender ourselves and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But it's time for the church to stop preaching morality and start preaching Jesus, who is the gateway to morality. The second thing that we are going to be about is restoration for orphans and widows. And I put this one second because this is close to the heart of the Father. And I've already showed you scriptures on this. James chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 1, Psalm chapter 68. Those are the things that are in God's heart. And I've told you that orphans are any child that's deprived of parental care. It doesn't mean their, their parents doesn't, don't live with them, but they're deprived of parental care. We're also going after widows. Widows are not just people who have lost their spouse. In that day, if you bring a widow into this day, it's those who are alone, those who are marginalized, those have no support. They are our elderly, they are our mentally disabled, they are our homeless. They live right here in here on South Dakota, and it's time for the church to be of the church to them. We are about restoring connection with people. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, it says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Hear this, we are better together. There is a spirit of the age. There is a bullying spirit at work in our world that is empowering hatred, empowering anger, empowering uh, isolation, that is empowering offense. We no longer listen to understand the person who disagrees with us. We automatically move to offended positions. That is a spirit that is at work that needs to start being demolished by the church in prayer and a church that starts overcoming evil with good. A church that refuses to be isolated from one another. A church that refuses to withdraw when other people hurt us. No, we're not going to withdraw. We're going to press in. We've been saying it for years that we connect with people. It's time for us to stop saying it and start doing it. I'm sorry, I'm a little passionate about all of this. As a society, we have become cynical, we have become negative, we have become suspicious, and it has crept its way into the church. For those of us that believe you can only walk in unity and respect and honor with those that you agree with 100% have not read this book. You can walk in unity, you can walk in respect, you can walk in honor with people you disagree with. And the church needs to start modeling it. As iron sharpens iron is not a phrase for a cat poster because iron sharpening iron produces sparks. And it's okay if there's a few sparks every once in a while. 
We're going to fight against the temptation to withdraw, to isolate ourselves, and to separate ourselves. We are going to fight for it. If we're going to say that we value relationships, we're going to protect them, we're going to care for them, and we're going to fight for them. If the Apostle Paul could take time in Philippians chapter 4 to put a pause on everything he was saying to the whole church, to talk to two women who were living in disagreement, and say, come on, ladies, let's work this out. You and I have to do that in our lives also. We will renounce secret and shameful behavior. If I feel there's an issue in your life that needs to be addressed as your pastor, you can be assured that I'll address it with you. I won't pick up my phone and tell 10 of your close friends to address it with you. I won't pick up my phone and call 10 other people and say, what do you think about so-and-so? I'll come to you. And I would expect you to treat the leaders in our church the same, whether they're deacons, whether they're teachers, whatever they are, I would expect you to pick up the phone and call them and not call 10 other people first. We will renounce secret and shameful ways, and we will honor and value connection with people in our body. We will also fight to restore peace and prosperity in the city of Huron. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, God says to his people, work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Now, if God could command his people in the place he was sending them basically to be slaves, to work for the peace and prosperity of that city, how much more should we work for the peace and the prosperity of the city of Huron where God has brought us? Let's stop bad-mouthing it. Let's stop talking about the customer service and how bad it is in our town. Let's stop talking about what we don't have. Let's stop dishonoring our elected officials. Then let's start working for the peace and the prosperity for this, of this city on our knees and with our hands. I don't think it's by accident that God put 208 Dakota Avenue South on our heart. I don't think it's by accident that two weeks after you and I voted in this room to move our church to that building, that 70 of our leaders would get together and agree on the same thing. We need to do something to revitalize our downtown area, and we believe that's going to be a catalyst to spark change throughout our city from the words of 70 of our leaders. And God put that on our hearts before theirs. I don't think that's coincidence. I think God is calling us to model for this community what restoration looks like. A church that's willing to say, you know what? This building is probably worth two and a half million dollars, but it's not what's important to us. What's important to us is people. And we're willing to do whatever it takes to start reaching them. Bigger is only better in the American dream. Bigger's not always better in the kingdom of God. We're going to fight for the restoration of small communities. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says this story. He said to the servant, go out and to the streets and to the alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant, he says, I've done this, and there's still room for more. He says, go into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone to come so that my house will be full. God has put church planting on our hearts, the city of Redfield and Howard and DeSmet and Woonsocket and Wessington. We've been doing it overseas for years, and it's been working, and there's no reason in the day in which we live that people should have to drive 30 or 60 miles miles to attend a church service or to worship together with believers or to pray together with believers. Every town in this nation could have a church. And if we can only do one or two or three or four or five, I don't know, but we're going to start doing it. The last five things on the backside of that are things that the Lord really worked into my heart through a mistake I made and the Lord showed me it was a mistake, but he did it kind of backwards. <laughs> you know how the Lord sometimes just confronts you right to your face and says, bam, you're wrong? Uh, another times the Lord just kind of brings you around and you're like, oh, wow, I really missed that. Um, and I don't know which way is more powerful, but this way was super prof profound. But I was reading Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 26 through 28 one day, and they just leapt off the page in my spirit. It says, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, and all of you have been united with Christ in baptism, have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. Listen, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, 
You are all one in Christ Jesus. And I was reading a book at the time by Will Ford and Matt Lockett, and it's called The Dream King, and it's an amazing book about the healing of the restoration and the healing of hurts and divisions and injustices that needs to take place in our world today. We are the light of the world as the church, and it's time for the church to start influencing the world and start, instead of being influenced by the world. It's time for the church to start, stop complaining about where God can and can't be or where we can and cannot post Christian things and just start being the church. Because here's, let me let you know on a little secret. The spirit of God lives in you. Everywhere you go, he is. So he's in our schools and he's in your workplace and he's in the courthouse and he's everywhere. So we don't have to actually post it overtly, but it's easier. It's easier for us, let's just be honest. It's easier to post the Ten Commandments than to actually get in the gutter beside someone and show them what the Ten Commandments look like. And it's time for the church to rise up and be the church. Our nation needs racial restoration. The, the police brutality issue, the kneeling during the anthem, it's all a smokescreen trying to deflect us, okay? Let, let me tell you this. If you're gonna sit and watch Fox News and CNN all day, you are not gonna be a part of it, okay? Because there is a spirit of this age that is just stirring up division and they will show you pictures that will get your emotions all out of whack and the very people God has called you to reach are gonna become your enemy. It's just crazy. And I know because I ran my mouth on this issue where I shouldn't have ran my mouth. I don't think the heart of God is where we think the heart of God is on this. We are not going to reason this issue away, and your little Facebook post is not going to bring healing to our nation. It's not. Maybe it's going to happen one-on-one -on -one is the only way it's going to happen. But for goodness sake, I don't know what God's calling us to do in this area yet, but let's at least stop empowering the spirit of the age by agreeing with it. And let's go after it in prayer. The Native American culture is another one. 500 years of, of ministry to Native Americans and less than 5% of them are believers. Could we admit maybe we're doing something wrong? Could we admit that maybe as churches, us you know, taking our little trip to the reservation to help the little Indians isn't working and maybe they need a little bit more commitment from us. Maybe they need to know that we actually care. Because it doesn't look like we care. There's a, a problem with the illegal immigration in our country. And it's not a simple solution. And I know it's easy to say, well, they should come here legally. And well, they should do this and they should do that. But can I tell you, read about the story of the Good Samaritan. Read about the story of Jesus in John chapter 4. And the Samaritan issue is the same issue facing America today. There's so much prejudice in our heart that we cloak with certain words. And it's time for it to stop. All I can tell you is this, be quick to listen and be slow to speak. Be quick to listen, be slow to speak. There needs to be class restoration. We need to be serving the poor. We need to be going after the neglected, the social outcasts. We've started the help fund because we felt like God put it in our hearts to do more, to get skin in the game. I believe the property at 208 Dakota Avenue South is a very strategic location. I've already interacted with people that I've never interacted with in 20 years, and I'm learning things that I thought I knew. And can I tell you that some of the people like Rodney, if I showed you a picture of Rodney today and said, this guy's a hero, most of you would have scoffed at it. He didn't look like a hero, but he's a hero. And some of the people that we marginalize and push away because of how they look or because of how they act, we don't even take time to get into their world and find out that, guess what? They're a human being with value just like you and I. There needs to be gender restoration that takes place. I believe that God wants us as a church to be a part of restoring women in ministry. I've always felt that. I've always taught on it. I believe the Bible says there are roles for men and women, but I believe some of those roles have been misused and incorrectly taught and tried to use to dominate people. It's been used to muzzle a voice that God intends to speak in the church. He does not want women to be silent in the church. That is not what the scripture teaches. 
teaches. And if we would take just half a second to study the scriptures, we would find that we are misusing that book to try to beat down a generation of women. It's time for it to stop. It's time for us to have healthy relationships, healthy marriages. Is it any wonder that there's gender identity confusion in our world? Because we've been teaching a false manliness and a false feminism for years. The church has the real truth, and it's time for us to start living it and modeling it and proclaiming it. We get excited that the divorce rate is lower than ever before in our world, and that's mostly because people aren't getting married anymore. They're just cohabitating. They've become cynical toward marriage. Why? Because most believers would never dream of getting a divorce, but they fight and there's abuse and there's all kinds of stuff that go on in their homes. They don't have healthy marriages, but hey, we didn't get divorced. As if when you get to heaven, God's going to say, praise God, you didn't get divorced. No, he's going to say, how'd you treat your wife every day? How'd you treat your husband every day? And if you go into, well, did you see how they treated me? He'll shut you down. In fact, you won't even get into that because when you look into his eyes, you're going to realize, oh, was I wrong? Let's get it right now. Amen? It's time to restore healthy families in our culture. There, we've, we've got to go after marriages in our culture. All right. Two more. Are you still with me? I know I went over. You'll have to give me mercy because it's in the Bible. Generational restoration this is something that when we started Oaks back in um, a few months ago uh, that I've tried to, to share with our, our elder generation, uh, we need you. Christianity has always been designed around generational community, house to house, one generation to the next. And can I tell you something? Style war has been around since Martin Luther. We've been arguing about styles since Martin Luther, but one of the things I loved about Martin Luther was he understood the difference between theology and methodology. Please do not attach your identity, any generation, to your style. Your identity is in Christ. Style is what we use to try to reach the next generation. The older generation has to fight the lie that says things should not change. Or if things begin to change, it devalues my generation. It does not devalue your generation. We need this generation to stand up and to pass on these truths to the next generation that's coming. We need a generation of older adults to be grandparents in our youth ministry and children's ministry. Oh, we don't need you to stand study a lesson every week. We don't need you to get an activity or craft together every week. All we need you to do is to come into a room and throw your arms around some kids and tell them that you love them. It doesn't matter what color your hair is. It doesn't matter how many parts of your body you pierce. It doesn't matter how loud your music is or whether I can understand it or not. I see value in you and I want to encourage you to run the race God has for you. That's what we need. A generation that says, I don't care if they like my style. I'm going after them. We purposely take people to camp who are supposed to be grandparents who do nothing else but love on kids all week long. That's all you do is love on kids? That's the most important week of our camp. And last year, sadly, we didn't have grandparents at our camp. Because we couldn't find any people to say, you know what, I'll go to camp and I'll just love on broken kids all week long. The last thing we need is denominational restoration. I've been a part of this community for 20 years. And I've been a part of the Huron Ministerial Association for 20 years. When I first came, there were two groups. There was an evangelical group, and then there was a ministerial association group. There's this, there's this lie in, in this area that we're fighting for doctrinal purity. And, you know, we can't rub shoulders with people who don't believe exactly like us. The scripture's clear. If you believe in the cross and the cross alone for salvation, we're brothers and sisters. We disagree on anything else. You put the cross first and Jesus alone, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm going to walk hand in hand with you. And it's time for the church to stop judging a book by its cover. 
It's time for us to stop labeling and putting certain denominations or certain ministers in certain categories and listening from a distance and refusing to get close. There's a call. There's, in January, we're, we're trying to put together an event for our teens in this community. It's being put on by a non-evangelical church. They're actually the sponsors of it. And I'm excited because they're actually pouring into this idea of suicide. Because let me tell you, I know of three people, three people in our community that have thought about suicide that I've heard about in just the last two weeks. Okay, this is a, a, an epidemic. There's an enemy that wants to go after the hearts and the souls of our young people. And it's time for churches to stop fighting about doctrinal purity and really just start going after the hearts of kids with the power of the cross. Let's stop worrying about what we don't agree about and let's focus on what we do agree on. Now, I'm not going to water down the gospel and I'm not going to hold hands with the Mormon church and the Jehovah's Witnesses and say that they're fellow believers in Christ. They're not. They teach another Jesus other than the one that has been taught to us. So we're not going to just reach out to everybody, but those that preach the power of the cross for salvation, we're going to join hands with and we're going to fight for. And I'm going to call all pastors in this community to start joining hands together and to be a part of of the movement that God is trying to stir up in this city and around the world. And I know that I put a ton, a ton of information in front of you today, and I know I went way over. I felt like I had to. These are things that God has put in my heart for this church, and I know that the, the last year in this church has been rocky. Let's just, let's, not, let's just not pretend. Let's not leave here today and pretend that everything's just been smooth for the last year, okay? It's been rocky. It's been hard. And here's the thing, God's in the middle of all of it. I'm not saying that every decision we're making and everything we're saying is God, and if you're not on this side, you're not on God. I'm just saying God's here. He's present. He's in our lives, all of us. And we can either pay attention to things that matter or we can pay attention to things that don't. I can't take away all the risks. I can't, I mean, we can do the most we can to take away risk, but faith is spelled R-I-S-K. And so all I'm saying today is, come risk with me. Come risk with me. I can't promise you we'll do it right. I can't promise you that it's all gonna work out and be perfect, but you know what? We might win somebody. And I'm, act, I'm, I'm to the point in my life where we just need to win somebody. We just need to win somebody. In any direction, the Lord says, hey, go that direction. I'll sniff it out. Is this you, Lord? And we'll go after it. Be ready, be willing to risk with me. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this list home with you. And I want you all week long to pray through this list. And next Sunday morning, we're going to have a prayer service through this list. And if you want to be a part of praying for one of these issues, in other words, there's something that you're like, man, this is me. This is God stirring in my heart. See, here's the thing. I'm the leader of the body, okay? This is what I feel like God is leading our body to be a part of. And if I'm right, there's somebody in the room that's going to resonate with every one of those things. You don't have to resonate with all of them because we're a body. My arm doesn't help me run. I mean, it does. But my feet, my legs do the running, okay? But the arm supports the running. Make sense? So all of us are going to pray through this list, but all of us are not going to serve in all these areas. But I believe this is what God's calling our church to be a part of. I believe this defines what restoration is. And so I want you to pray through it. I want you to, to walk through it. And now I want you to stand with me. I know that's like a crazy way to end and... Uh, but I'm going to pray something over you. And I just, here's the thing. We don't, don't start any music. I've been at North Central University for two worship nights, three worship nights, four chapel services. And um, this is no offense to Ginny, but their worship isn't like ours. I mean, they have lights it's loud, super loud. There's actually times I'm like ear piercing loud. Um, but that's okay. Because here's what I did. I just worshiped. And so today when I came in and we started with great is thy faithfulness, you know what I did? I just worshiped. 
Because I don't care what the song is. I don't care whether there's lights or fog machine or no lights or fog machine. I don't care if there's a pallet wall or paneling. I don't care if I'm in a building or not in a building. I'm going to worship. Because I understand that he's good and he's worthy of worship. And so I know, I know, I know God is leading this church. I have no idea where he's leading us fully. But I trust him. Trust him. And so, Father, I thank you that you are good, that you are for us, that you're not against us. I thank you that you have fitted this body together perfectly for such a time as this. God, I thank you for the different personalities that are in this room right now. I thank you for the different ethnicities that are in this room right now. God, I thank you for the different backgrounds that are in this room right now. I thank you for the different callings and giftings and styles that are in this room right now. And God, I come against the spirit of this age that will try to divide, that would try to come against what you want to do in this body of believers. God, we're going to fight to stay together. We're going to fight for for unity and restoration, for connection, not just in this body, but connection with people in this community. God, we're not going to have, we're not going to make enemies of the very people that you've called us to reach. And so Holy Spirit, I just pray that the things that I've shared today, God, the things that are of you, I pray that you would resonate in the hearts of the people of this body. God, the things that are me and my flesh, I pray that you'd cast them aside. Holy Spirit, may they gain no traction. May they gain no momentum. May nothing come of them. But God, everything that's of you, Holy Spirit, I pray, birth it in our hearts. Help us as a body to get behind it in prayer. Help us as a body to, give, to throw our hand to the plow and begin to work in that direction. Holy Spirit, start something in our hearts that's going to expand, not just in this city, but it's going to expand across this state, it's going to expand across this country, it's going to expand around this world. God, do a work in our lives over this next week, I pray. Speak clearly and plainly to every member of this body, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being patient. Thank you for the extra time. Next week, actually Tuesday night, house of prayer in this room. I want to encourage you to be a part of that. And then next week, we're going to take some time to pray through this. God bless you as you go. Whispering peace amidst the storm